Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Nathan Brown. Nathan is Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at GW, the Department of Political Science. Nathan is the author of a range of books and articles on the Middle East. I'm sure you all know his work from, uh, from a range of different outlets, and I'm really looking forward to talking with him today. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Nathan, I normally start by asking the question, what provoked your interest in, in the Middle East and academia? So can you just give us a little insight into your thinking, please? Uh, well, yes, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, not necessarily an inspiring story. The, the truth of the matter was I was an undergraduate in the late 1970s in the United States with no experience, no background in the Middle East whatsoever. Okay. Reading the newspaper, and there were always a lot of Middle East stories. Sure, so yeah. I decided to take a course my, right when I got to college on Middle East politics. And the course was so intimidating, I wanted to drop it. Right. But in order to drop it, I needed to get permission of the professor. Um, this was Leonard Binder, who was then at the University of Chicago. He later moved on to UCLA. Um, and I found him too intimidating. Huh, wow. So I get his permission. Okay. Uh, I actually had the nerve to ask him for it, which I didn't. Uh, and so I was stuck. And I've been stuck in the field ever since. And that's the true reason. That's exactly how I got in. That's incredible. What was the what was the course that you were doing, uh, your degree, at that time? I was, uh, this was, so I was a major in political science, right, the okay. Chicago, but the course itself was international relations of the Middle East. And I still remember, again, I was intimidated because he would throw out names in terms of people or even countries I'd barely heard of before. Right. Okay. And because of that sort of intellectually daunting atmosphere, you thought, you know, I need to, I need to change. Yes, exactly. Yes. And then... Aside from that that slight fear and trepidation, was it that you were reading the newspapers and, and started to become more interested or, or you just sort of fell into it because you didn't change? Why did you decide to take on more, more Middle East related courses after that? Well, it did get it did get very interesting sure, in the yeah. University of Chicago, where I was an undergraduate. You had to pick one non-Western civilization to study for a year. You had oh, to pick wow, a year okay. of Western civilization and a year of non-Western civilization. So I did Islamic civilization. This was a course that actually had been taught in the past by Marshall Hodgson, who had passed away by the time I got to the University of Chicago. But it was still sort of based in his framework, and it was it was an absolutely fascinating class. It was a large lecture class, so I could sit in the back, not be noticed, and try to catch up with all the things I didn't know. By mm. the end of that year, I was hooked. Right. Fantastic. And that sounds wonderful, doing that for a full year of getting to grips with things. And at that time, I imagine it was quite a rarity to be to be able to spend that amount of time and detail going into, into a non-Western context like that. Absolutely. It was still the case that I hadn't actually been to anywhere in the Middle East. I didn't start studying any Middle Eastern language until I got to graduate school. So it was sort of a slow introduction. But in the late 1970s, that was still intensive by the uh, by the standards of American undergraduate education. Sure. So when did you first go to the region and, and where was it? 
So I first went to Cairo in, um, in that was in 1983, and I went there to study Arabic on the CASA program. I'd done some uh, Arabic coursework in graduate school, and then this was this was uh, a, a program that still exists, uh, hosted out of the American University in Cairo. Right. So that meant going there for an entire year uh, to study the language, and then staying on a second year to do dissertation research. Amazing. And how was that? How was it? having spent a bit of time studying a region that you weren't all that familiar with, but became increasingly uh, intrigued by intellectually and otherwise, and then going there for the first time, spending a year. What what were your memories from that period? Well, it's uh, obviously a little bit different than it is today. This was early 1980s, so communication with, uh, you know, email didn't exist, uh, international telephone calls were a, a lot to set up. Um, and so when I went there for two years, I really felt that I was immersing myself fully. I mean, I lived in Cairo for two years, living on my own. I the, My first year there, I associated primarily with other American students. My second year, I was, I had a, a, a good group of Egyptian friends. So it was, uh, it was really a full immersion. And I think one thing that led me to appreciate was just the incredible diversity of the region. You know, I thought I was going off to the Middle East. What I learned was I was going off to certain segments of Cairo in a uh, in a region that, as I said, was, you know, people looked upon things differently according to where they were, according to class, according to ethnicity, according to historical background, levels of education, and so on. So it was, uh, it was a full immersive experience, at least in a segment of the region. Sure, yeah. And how were your views of the region challenged by by going there? I mean, it's it's always a fascinating experience to go somewhere for the first time, having spent time reading about it, looking at photographs, videos, listening to, to stories about it. What were your first immediate reflections of Cairo? Um, that it was uh, crowded, hot and dirty. Um, <laughs> right. And um, I still have that impression when 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 I go there, just sort of a, <laughs> you're immersing yourself fully in in, in just this this uh, sea of humanity. Yeah. But I would that was that was something in a sense that my academic preparation didn't really help me much with because I was a political scientist, yep. and therefore my interest in the region was about its politics. And the fact was, in the early 1980s, most Egyptians weren't all that interested in politics. It was sort of a a futile thing to be uh, uh, trying to change the political course of the country. Um, and so most discussions really focused on other things about, and, you know, again, as I was a, a 20-something, most of my contemporaries were 20-somethings, they were interested in starting a career, getting an education, getting married, and so on. So so the, the problems that occupied them were the problems of, of kind of personal life. Um, and those are ones that I really didn't have much of an, uh, of, of an inkling about in an Egyptian context. So how did you get up to speed with that, given your your political science background was, I imagine, pretty traditional in terms of political science and not really going into the, the, the cultural, the normative, the, the societal factors that, that affect everyday life. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the main things you learn by is sometimes by offending people, by saying something that is uh, that is taken to be, uh, um, you know, disrespectful or where somebody has to sort of put their arm around you and say, wait, we don't quite say that that way here and so on. Um, it, 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 as much as anything else, it kind of led me to understand how it was that certain kinds of um, 
uh, feelings were understood, perceived, conveyed in an Egyptian context. And sometimes listening to Egyptians, I always say this, I learn the most not from talking to Egyptians. Uh, I learn the most about Egypt by listening to Egyptians talk with each other, what they argue about, what they disagree about, what they, what, what, what they find uh, contestable. Mm, sure. So you did that two years and you were doing dissertation field work. What was the dissertation topic on? The dissertation was on rural politics, basically late 19th and uh, century Egypt, first half of the 20th century. Most of it was archival work. It was work uh, a lot in the National Library or in the National Archives, just looking for signs of political activism from the, from the countryside. Fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. So then, was that, that was for your, your doctoral research? Exactly, yes. Sure. Um, and... And where was that? That was at Princeton. At Princeton, fantastic. And once you finished that, Nathan, where did life take you? Well, I taught for a year at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which is an undergraduate-only institution, and then that was just a visiting position. Um, and then I came to George Washington University. That was in 1987, um, and I've been here since. And this is a very different kind of institution. It's We've got a doctoral program. Uh, we've got uh, master's-level professional education. We've got undergraduate education. And I will say, actually, the GW that I teach in now is a very different place than the one that I, uh, that I came to back in 1987. It's probably more research-oriented, invest more in its doctoral education, and so on. So it's, so it's a, it's a research-intensive university in a way that's more the case than it was when I first got here. Fantastic. So you've, you've seen its evolution and development in, in a range of areas then, I imagine. With some relief. Any time I go to a department meeting when talking about hiring, I just keep on feeling a strong sense that I'm glad I applied for the job when I did because the sorts of people that we're turning down are have a far stronger records than I did when I came here. Yeah, I, I certainly echo those sentiments. I'm not sure that I would get a job if I was on the market right now, straight out of my, my PhD. Um, Nathan, your your thesis, I assume, was what went on to become your, your book with Yale in 1990, Peasant Politics in Modern Egypt, The Struggle Against the State. Uh, yes, exactly. I turned the dissertation, it took me a couple of years, but I turned the dissertation in, 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 into a book that came out then, 1990, yes. Amazing. And then I would imagine that, that most people listening to, to the podcast know you for another type of, of research, and that concerns law, constitutions, the rule of law. Where did that come from? Because it's quite a shift, isn't it, moving from, from peasant politics, as you call it, to, to the legal dimensions. It is a shift, and again, there's a uh, there's a personal element as well as a professional one. The professional one is simply that when I was doing work in 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 rural politics, um, what I was encountering essentially was a state building project as it was experienced and as rural residents reacted to it. But I was a little bit more interested in trying to understand what was going on with this construction of new national institutions, police. Um, um, monitoring institutions, legal institutions, and so on. So I, I thought, I want to understand what was going on in that period, how state building uh, occurred, the course that it took, the motivations for it, and so on. That was a professional reason, or the academic reason. Right. Uh, but the personal reason as well, um, 
And that is quite honestly, um, 1990 was the year my uh, my older son was born. I had young children, and the idea of going off to do long periods of field work uh, was not all that attractive to me. So I thought, what I need to do is to is is to find something where I can make shorter trips to the region, do interviews, collect documents, yeah. and rely a little bit more on written sources than than on archival work or on participant observation or anything like that. So uh, that made law, which is I mean, there are all different kinds of ways to study law, but a much more textual study and one that relied on interviewing people who were active in the field um, much more promising. And I actually found that, you know, again, this is a place in which uh, this is a time at which, you know, um, Egypt then, like it is today, was was very authoritarian, and some political conversations were ones that might be you might be a little bit nervous about having, or be careful about who you talk to, or how. I found that uh, judges were actually very open, very accessible, and law seemed to be a technical subject rather than a political one. So it was it was it was something where where I found the the legal community and the judicial community actually very open and very accessible for doing research at the time. That's really interesting to to hear. It somewhat surprises me and sort of first hearing. But why do you think that was? Well, a, a couple reasons. Number one is that you know the the, the, the Egyptian judiciary is has a very very strong sense of corporate identity, a very strong sense of historical roots going back to the nineteenth century, um, and and um, some markers of institutional autonomy, which means, and, and in the 1990s, those were on the on the rise. So it sort of meant that these were people who didn't feel necessarily like they, the way that I like to put it is, uh, Egyptian judiciary, by and large, sees itself as part of the state apparatus, to be certain, but not necessarily loyal or beholden to the regime. Yeah. So that was why they could be a little bit more open. And the second thing is that, you know, what we saw, what we've seen over the last couple decades, actually even beginning in the 1980s, but only only embryonic then, was a tendency in Egypt of political disputes to take on very, very strong legal dimensions. That was just beginning in the 1980s. Right. So again, if you were interested, what I was interested in often were um, cases about the uh, or, uh, 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 questions about the structure of the judiciary, about judicial education. If I was interested in concrete cases, they often tended to be things like housing or divorce. So it sounded as if I was doing boring research on 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 mundane topics rather than on sensitive topics. Uh, okay, that that makes a lot of sense on, on all grounds, actually. Nathan, I I, I have to ask that. Your, your work has an appeal beyond uh, traditional political science, and I know a number of, of constitutional lawyers who are huge fans of, of what you're doing. But I, I must ask, how did you find going from training in political science to moving into to what is essentially a, a very specific and detailed part of, of the law? How, how was that to transition between the two, and what do you think your political science education brought to your analysis of, of these constitutional legal processes and documents? 
It did bring something, but it was it wasn't necessarily easygoing at the beginning. And the reason is this: that, you know, obviously there's a close relationship between studies of constitutional arrangements, constitutional structures, constitutional documents on the one hand, and politics on the other. Yeah. In the American Academy, um, those things are were married primarily only in the field of American politics. Okay, and in fact, the. The comparative politics that I had been trained in was very much a reaction against that. We were taught in graduate school that the time for formal legal studies had come and gone a generation ago. So, if you, if I, when I went back and took a look at works by political scientists on comparative constitutionalism, most of them tended to be written before I was born. Right. It seemed like a very old-fashioned topic at the time. I got interested in it because, again, what I, what I, what I just referred to, the, 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 the tendency that was in embryonic at that time, I would guess I got into it most in the 1990s, of transforming political disputes into constitutional ones, it really seemed to be picking up. There was a specific institutional actor, the Supreme Constitutional Court of Egypt, which, again, really took this... Um, this feature that I just described, seeing itself as part of the state but as independent of the regime fairly seriously and actually had some real effects, I think, on how Egyptian politics was, was, uh, was, was practiced. It didn't, it didn't end authoritarianism, but it forced the authoritarianism of the regime to operate in, 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 in new and different ways. So I got into that and I discovered essentially a fairly live uh, intellectual tradition in uh, Arab legal communities, Arab judicial communities, and then increasingly in political communities as well, in which political grievances were translated into constitutional demands, in which complaints about authoritarianism very quickly took on an institutional cast so that somebody might say, not simply that we have authoritarianism in this country, but we need an end to uh, states of exception or emergency rule or military trials of civilians. Um, and these were actually core constitutional questions, ones which constitutional texts tended to either um, answer or sometimes walk around. But, 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 Again, this goes into then the early 2000s. Suddenly, constitutional struggles were moving to the center of Arab politics. Yeah, it strikes me that there's a there's a tension that starts to come out in the 2000s with the perhaps a slightly implicit, although I think increasingly explicit, normative dimension that constitutions have a a democratized dimension to them. And if that is the case, how does that then play out across across authoritarian states in the region? Um, that that is a good question. I mean, what I what I found when I was working on this in the nineteen nineties was that constitutional texts were not treated as completely marginal by anybody, and not even by existing regimes. That that constitutional texts tended to be ways in which, you know, even an even an authoritarian regime um, uh, has to know who's responsible for what. Of course, um, yeah. You know, sort of chains of command and so on. And um, uh, a colleague of mine once uh, read my book and said, Nathan, I think the argument you're making is that law is the language this state speaks to itself. And I heard that, and I thought, yes, that's exactly what I was saying. If, if, if you told me that earlier, I wouldn't have had to write the entire book. <laughs> uh, that, so that's what was going on in the 1990s. But, but constitutional texts, even though they are 
as they were written in the Arab world, certainly in that period, tended to reflect kind of the priorities and the ways that existing authorities wished to structure the way that they operated, still provided some openings. Hmm. And because constitutional texts generally provided for some kind of democratic mechanisms, um, even if you know they were they were sort of vague promises, often robbed of any any impact or any real efficacy in the fine print of the constitutional text. What that tended to do was to get people to focus on sometimes, not all of them, but a lot of activists to focus on fixing the constitutional text, a conviction that if we can. Would say if we can get the constitution right, if uh, then we can have a different kind of political order. So there is a clear normative project in terms of fixing the constitution. Yes, I certainly think that there was, and 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 that was behind an awful lot of the political energy in twenty eleven. It certainly wasn't the only impetus, but yeah. it was to me very fascinating how in most countries political demands from diverse sources of opposition from all different kinds of movements very very quickly got translated into specific constitutional demands we need to have this constitutional structure we need to cancel that one we need to Mm -hmm. have this kind of electoral guarantee we need to have this kind of guarantee of judicial independence and discussions got very detailed very quickly yeah and i guess there what you have is that the coalescence of of law and politics, your your sort of traditional schooling, if you will, in political science of, of protest, of of frustration and and general demands from people, and also the the legal discussions that that you had started to adopt in the in the mid nineteen nineties. So it, it all sort of comes together at that point. Then it it did come together. What was sort of the. the there were discussions that were taking place in, you know, seminars, in workshops among intellectuals, activists in the 1990s into early 2000s. Um, what was interesting is by the mid, by, by say late, I would say 2007, 2008 or so, those are beginning to seep into broader public discussions yeah. on satellite television, in more open, more independent uh, press and so on. And and so these are no longer seen as just kind of technical discussions among legal experts, uh, but really kind of the uh, the bread and butter of a lot of political debate. What does the language of, of that debate, or that set of debates look like? Is it the sort of thing that you would expect to see in a discussion about, say, constitution and the rule of law, in a in a completely different context, or is it something that is maybe um, specific to to the Middle East, or specific to the Gulf, or specific to a particular country? I think so. The general themes are are common. A lot of them focused on, for instance, on human rights. What rights do we want to guarantee, and how can we guarantee them? Yeah. Some focused on accountability. How can we make sure that the ultimate holders of political authority are accountable generally to the people, to the law, to electoral mechanisms, to democratic procedures, and and so on. So those are kind of common, but they took on some specificity in each case, depending on what it was that they were reacting against. Constitutions are often... You know, they present themselves as this is about the future, but they're often very backward-looking documents saying this was what was broken in our past and this is what we've we've got to fix. There's a third element as well that's actually um, uh, 
talked about less in scholarly circles, but I think is 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 very important. We scholars tend to look upon constitutions as legal documents that are about institutions, defining the state and how it's going to operate. Yeah. When we get into public discussions, they're really often also about constituting a people. Who are we? What are our fundamental political values? And it's interesting that an awful lot of the most uh, difficult constitutional debates that take place in the public realm are often about things like the preamble. Sure. Or relationship between religion and state, or sometimes about history. Yeah, uh, and those are things that you know a, a, a constitutional law scholar would say. Yeah, say whatever you want there. Let's get past the preamble and let's get to the detailed clauses. Mm. Or there will be lengthy provisions at the beginning um, about you know national identity and so on. You know, my favorite is you know the Tunisian constitution says Tunisia is a North North African state. And if you remove that clause, Tunisia doesn't suddenly get you know, float off into space. The the clause has no legal meaning, but it, but things like that are tremendously important to people. And in an Arab context, and specifically, what it what really seemed to set off an awful lot of debates were definitions of the relationship between religion and political community. So that was something that was specific. It's a part of a general trend about emphasizing identity issues. But the, but the role of Islam took on very specific salience in in the Arab world. Well, it's interesting that you've brought up Islam because you've preempted a question there, Nathan. So thank you for that. I've, I wonder where does where does religion fit in terms of not only these discussions that were taking place, but also constitutional processes and, and the rule of law in a more abstract sense? I mean, the example that, that I keep thinking about when, when I reflect on this is the case of Saudi Arabia, where um, the, the basic law that... that serves essentially as the constitution talks about sovereignty being found in god but then also sovereignty also being found in the king who has the ability to suspend the law so there's this this interesting tension between the king and god so how does that play out would you say um in saudi arabia it plays out in some interesting ways right now and uh, yeah and and the king or the crown prince seems to be getting the upper hand at the moment. Um, I would say there's a similar tension in other Arab constitutions, but it's it's a three-way rather than two-way. It's between God or religion on first, and that's there's usually some general clauses that are about that, but they but they often don't translate into any clear legal meaning. The second possible sovereign is the people, right? These constitutions are often written in the name of the people. They're ratified in a popular referendum. They speak in the name of the people. So there's some kind of sense of, of, of popular sovereignty. Yeah. The difficulties there are like, what are the mechanisms for that? Mm-hmm. And also, I think an, un, an underappreciated uh, difficulty is that there often isn't a single people. Uh, there's uh, th- these are societies in which the people differ very greatly on on on, on core issues. Sure. And the third source of sovereignty, like Saudi Arabia, is generally the uh, the head of state, the executive, or the regime. A few constitutions seem to suggest that, like you know, uh, certainly the ones that are in 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 royalist systems, like uh, Morocco and so on. They seem to. Uh, Kuwait seemed to place, to some extent, the, the monarchy almost outside of the constitutional order. But even the republics do that in effect. They basically take the position of president and put the pre- the figure of president um, not not directly, not literally, but 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 
very effectively outside of the constitutional order. To me, that's actually the core problem of, uh, or the co core question of Arab constitutional practice is whether or not the constitution can serve to make the supreme human holders of political authority accountable. And most of them don't. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, Nathan, we've, we've basically talked through your your intellectual career in terms of of small highlights for for people who aren't aware we've we've basically gone through the the key questions that I think that that you've explored in great detail and, and in such a wonderful way across your books but given that we're running out of time if I may ask one final question and it's it's a bit more speculative if that's okay sure and that question is, to what extent do you think do the things like constitutions and legal processes have the capacity to, to try and eradicate or ameliorate sect-based divisions? I'm, I'm thinking of, of the Lebanese case, the Iraqi case, uh, the Libyan case, for example. How and to what extent can these, these aspects, these legal mechanisms, try and and address problems that political solutions have failed to do in a, perhaps in a lasting way? Um, that's a great question. And it's a question that's of great interest to constitutional scholars, I would say, globally. Yeah. Constitutions in divided societies sure. and, and, and so on. There are some, some, some great minds that have worked on that. I'm not sure I'm one of them. Um, and it's not simply, it, partly it's because the, the countries that I've focused on most are, I would say, are the political systems, Egypt, Palestine, Kuwait. These are countries where there are sectarian differences, to be sure, um, but they're not quite, they don't pose quite the challenge that they do in places like uh, 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 Iraq or, or Lebanon and so on. Yeah. But see, there is a common element, um, and it goes back to something that I said earlier. Um, when I said I learned most about Egypt when I heard Egyptians arguing with each other, or when I talked about there not being really any single people, a lot of constitutional uh, argumentation in the Arab world really assumes that there is a single people. And what what, what I sometimes say is that uh, um, I think that these discussions would go an awful lot easier if, or would be a lot more productive, a lot more fruitful, if inhabitants in the region began to approach constitutional texts not as ways in which we as a people define who we are or what we want to instruct our rulers to do, but instead how we as a diverse group a diverse community who are fated to live with each other have to uh, of dealing with each other. How does we handle difference? Um, and that's something that doesn't that has not um, gotten. I think this the amount of attention and it's something where actually. It, this is not just an Iraqi problem. It's not just a Lebanese problem. It's a problem in in Egypt over issues of differences in class, residence, of orientation towards religion. It's you know it's it's a crying problem in Tunisia where you've got you don't have sectarian differences uh, afflicting the society, but you have a very very strong set of cultural differences between a francophone and non and and and, and non francophone and so on. So these the, it, it, we're talking speculatively. I sure, think yeah. that is where. Um, if I could give um, any advice to my friends in the region, it's that is where to move public debates, to see constitutions not as as absolute definitions of political community, but as ways to help people who differ find structures and mechanisms by which to manage their differences. Fantastic. That's incredibly provocative and thoughtful and 
it's something that I'm going to be chewing over for a while. It really speaks to what we're trying to do here in SEPAD. And I know that we'll be picking these conversations up. So thank you for 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 laying out some some ways of thinking through these types of questions. Nathan, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I've really appreciated it. I've really enjoyed it. I'm going to be thinking for a long time afterwards. So thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. As always, thank you for listening and until next time.